What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 149, I'm speaking with Barnaby Marshall and Vignesh Kumar. Barnaby is a partner at Icehouse Ventures, and Vignesh is a co-managing partner at GV1, and they're both based in Auckland, New Zealand. Think of this conversation as a balcony view of the state of play in the tech ecosystem in New Zealand and a roundtable of musings. We deep dive into various aspects, including Barnaby and Vignesh's varied and interesting entry points into venture capital and how their prior experiences in different domains helped. Unpacking the historical and current state of play of the New Zealand venture ecosystem, Generation 3, as Barnaby refers to it, and examples of the success stories to date. And then we dive into the thesis and fund construction of GD1 and Icehouse, the investment committee decision-making process. This one is particularly relevant founders looking to raise capital and VCs like Icehouse and GD1. We review the cultural change starting to happen in New Zealand and what would Barnaby and Vignesh do if they had a magic wand to change anything? And you may find the areas of learning for the next six months intriguing. I, for one, have exactly those points on my list. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Barnaby Marshall, Vignesh Kumar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, kia ora. Thanks for having us, mate. I'm excited to do this one. We've had a couple of guests to date from New Zealand, but this is the first one with two New Zealand guests. So as we do with our episodes, why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene. So Vignesh, where were you born and where do you live now? Mate, I was born in the Pacific Islands in Papua New Guinea. And then I live in New Zealand now, but a bit of a chameleon across all different geos. Nice. And Barnaby? I was born about two kilometers from where I am stationed now, so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with me. <laughs> and actually, as a, as a little fun fact, maybe skipping ahead a bit, uh, we bought a house right next to my brother-in-law about two years ago, and then he got a job in Singapore and moved overseas. So now my parents have moved in next door. So it's a, it's a family affair wow. in Point Chev. <laughs> nice. And that's in Auckland, is that right? Yeah, we're in central Auckland. Yeah, nice. And from a work perspective, Ignash, what was your first job and what do you do now? Uh, mate, my first job was uh, Mitre 10 and I was brought on to be cashier. But then my first weekend, the, the, the store owner made me I could go to the back and lift pallets. And I was just like, man, I am not built for this with this Indian frame. And so I very quickly resigned after that. And then now, obviously, in BC. Interesting, interesting journey, yeah. Mm, and we'll get into your role in a few minutes. And Barnaby, talk about your first role and what do you do now? 
my first job was at Starbucks, I think, making coffee. I, I mean, I got the job because the store manager went to Avondale College and I went to Avondale College. And so, you know, it's a, and it's a public school, but he was keen to look out for his own. And so he gave me a job at the tender age of 15 and I probably wasn't good for much for some period of time. Um, and my role now is as a partner at ISOS Ventures, investing in startup companies. Hmm. Very cool. Let's give some context to our listeners and each of you for your roles pre-investing. I think you've both got really different but equally important backgrounds. So maybe Vignesh, we'll start with you. So you studied a engineering degree, is that right? Yeah. So I studied biomedical engineering. And so I was one of the early batches out of the University of Auckland when they first brought the degree in. So most employers didn't know what to do with us, given the title. And so it was a unique kind of fusion of engineering science, mechatronics, human systems biology. And so I kind of bucked the trend of my entire class going on to do PhDs. So I just went into work into industry. So I went to work at FNP Healthcare. And I spent kind of six years there designing uh, medical devices to resuscitate premature babies. So that was kind of my, my, my first kind of professional foray into engineering, using my engineering degree uh, in a super niche uh, space of healthcare, neonatal resuscitation. And then post that, you did a few other roles, like you even spent a couple of years at Apple, right? So when you look back on the various roles you've done, which ones taught you the most? Like what were the most pivotal roles to date to give you a summary question? Look, to be honest, the FNP healthcare role was actually what set me up. So when I think about that role, it was the full gamut of engineering, from industrial to product to process, interfacing with product marketing, and then even acting as in-region support for kind of the customers of our medical devices, so like hospitals. So while I was traveling for work, if I was in the U.S. Uh, near a children's hospital, I would be asked to go in and be the in-region support. And so that was really kind of, you know, super hands-on, using your hands, tangible engineering stuff. And as you mentioned, kind of subsequently to that, stuff working for companies like Apple in the U.S. and living there for several odd years, it's a different kind of pace. But I would say kind of the more pivotal moment was, again, learning the fundamental engineering skills, which you kind of get being at the coalface at a place like F&P Healthcare. I mean, you learn different things looking for like a tech behemoth like Apple, more about kind of using your time super efficiently and scaling things super fast. But those are different skills and experiences. And Barnaby, I want to get to you in a second, but Vignesh, how does one go from that world into the world of finance and VC? Yeah, look, when I was doing my job at, at Apple, it was kind of two-pronged. So the first part of my job was design transfer. So taking stuff from industrial design to the product design to the manufacturing design. And what that really meant was I kind of had two main facets to my job. One was using balance sheet, I think every nine months to license, acquire, or JV in young technology companies into Apple's kind of hardware supply chain. And so this could be stuff around surface finishing of aluminium, um, 3D printing liquid silicone, things which improve the manufacturability yield processes of Apple, but nonetheless, we're engaging with young deep tech or hardware startups. Uh, and so I was often involved in a bit of deal structuring, working with the corporate finance and BD teams, particularly if those transactions started to become more relevant to Apple as kind of a acquisition or internal program. 
And so that's what got me exposed to kind of deal making, working with startups. And then, yeah, when I, when I moved back to New Zealand subsequently, yeah, I kind of began using those skills to angel invest in deep technology startups, science and engineering things. And then that kind of, again, organically grew into venture where I kind of had experience on the other side of the table and kind of use it now to pontificate on where interesting uh, you know, opportunities might go and then make my VC investment through GD1. Yeah. Very cool. It's my favorite part of our industry is that people come from all walks of life and all shapes and sizes. And I think you're a good example of that. Barnaby, I want to come to you now and ask, I guess, similar questions to set the scene on who you are. So I wasn't able to find as much on your educational history as I was on Vignesh. So talk about how you went into your first professional role post high school or university. Yeah, well, I've kind of got a bit of a different arc, I suppose, to getting into venture capital. And it really comes, I suppose, fundamentally from just my strong entrepreneurial spirit and wanting to, to build companies and solve problems in the world that has led me to where I've got to today. But going back to the beginning, I was a muso at high school, and so I studied sound engineering and basically became like a full-time musician for about two years making making music for a few different groups. There's a New Zealand group called Homebrew that had an offshoot band called At Peace, and I was one of the beat makers, I suppose, <laughs> for that group. So... That a business partner and well, my soon-to-be business partner and I started a shared space to house a group of entrepreneurs that all had similar creative aspirations in 2011. I think I remember the the flat meeting we had at the end of 2010, and we all got together and there was a, a group that did a music festival. There was a, a, my now business partner who had a small like recording studio. He had some artists in a partnership with Sony Music. And then my Sydney business partner, Valentin Ozic, who's the founder of Isle of Ugly. And I was actually doing some beat making and also had an, had an underwear, like a subscription underwear and socks brand. So that was my, that was where I started in the rag trade. Um, after about six months in that space, V and I decided to become business partners just because we had quite complementary skills. And so I I sold everything that I had of the the milk underwear stock and then sold the business. Actually, on, on um, businessforsale.com, I think I sold it for like 10,000 US dollars, which was basically mm-hmm. just like some photos I'd taken, a URL and like some 2XL inventory, which I hadn't been able to sell in the, <laughs> sell in the liquidation sale. <laughs> Or, you know, like the inventory liquidation. And so I basically had about 30 grand. I transferred it all to V and did this 50-50 on, on building I Love Ugly. And so that was the start of a journey of about seven years for us, building that into a, what's our household name in New Zealand? I mean, it probably was a household name even back in 2012. So, yeah, that was, so we built a, built a brand, built a business, and I really had that scaling journey going from, basically, you know, some inventory in our little office in Mount Eden 
through to a brand that had a store and, you know, three geographies around the world, quite a complex supply chain and, and you know, everything that all the uh, successes and challenges that come with that. I started in VC basically from listening to podcasts. In 2015, I used to listen to the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leadership podcast, which had interviews with like Bill Gurley and all sorts of different famous tech entrepreneurs. And I was just fascinated by, I suppose, two things. One is the the scalability, like the the aspects of things being not finite when you're selling technology and IP as your primary export. And the the other thing I suppose was just like addressing problems. And I was really looking for things that I could get involved in to make the world a better place through ideas and technology. And so anyway, that was the start of it. So I went to the only place that I knew that had anything to do with startups in New Zealand, which was which was the Ice House, and invested mm-hmm. in a couple of startups as an angel investor, and then had the opportunity to transition to come and work full-time for the team at the start of 2017. When there was really no VC, there wasn't really an industry in New Zealand at that time. So I've really just ridden the wave, the wave up to be honest, it kind of started at the bottom. Now we're here. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. I I love both your unique journeys to where you are today. And the the podcast, I mean, the podcast for me has played a huge role to getting into this industry. So I like that that's been a role for you as well. I want to maybe give our listeners a sense of the New Zealand ecosystem and then where each of your firms fit into that. Because we've got quite a large international audience, but I'm sure folks in New Zealand, of course, know both your. So open question to either of you is, do you want to give a sense of how big is the New Zealand ecosystem? Who are the key players? What are the key areas that VCs tend to invest in? And then where do each of your firms fit into that? So more of a current state of play than kind of a historical perspective. You choose. You can you can choose either, either or. Okay. Well, I think the... The key thing that's probably worth mentioning is a, a, just a quick summary of the New Zealand venture ecosystem. I think Barnaby touched on it. I didn't realize he started in 2017 because when I moved back in 2018, I caught up with Barnaby and I like there was this guy with his white shoes and like uh, immaculate dress sense at Ice House. And I was like, he must have been in this game for 10 plus years. So I didn't realize he was one year more than me at that point. But it's 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 it, it's true. When you look at the New Zealand venture scene, when I moved back in 2018, again, yeah, had a real, real paucity of capital, literally only a handful of firms. And, you know, again, amongst them, Ice House, GD1, Punakaiki, Movac were really the only sources of capital. And that too, everybody had a real kind of disparate, kind of non, non-contiguous approach to venture. And so it was all just kind of different horses for courses. And so, you know, when you, when you look at how we've gone from that to now, something which actually feels like a flourishing ecosystem with yeah, quite a number of firms, many firms having a different amount of capital. Obviously, Ice House, Movac, ourselves have kind of emerged from the pack, having you know, funds which now have greater than $100 million uh, in each fund. And then you kind of have the subscale funds kind of at the 50, quite a number of them. And then you have to have your super early stage funds kind of under the 15, 20 million. So things have, have, have really accelerated in the last little while. 
and it's it's worth reconciling that again this has only happened in the last three odd four odd years prior to that there was still a lot of yeah a, a lot of evolution to go maybe maybe i'll just build on that i mean the way the way i see because I know you have a lot, of, there's a lot of Australian listeners that listen to this podcast to kind of give context to it. I think New Zealand's probably like five years behind where the Australian eco- technology ecosystem is today. And it's ever present for me when you get down to the get together of all the Aussie VC funds. And you can kind of sense that there's, there's just a natural evolution of where we are today to where that capital market will be in a few years' time. But I'd say, you know, we're probably in what I would call generation three of the New Zealand venture ecosystem. Generation one, and it's not really a generation as such, was basically Trade Me. It was one company, and it sold for $700 million in 2007 or so. It was the first real software company of any substance or significance that had a, had a big exit and subsequently had a whole bunch of, had some angel investors that made some money and a first generation of, employees that made some money and felt the the rise and success of what a software company can do the investors in that company started movac which was really like the only vc shop in new zealand for about 10 years or so then we had and i think this is an interesting thing about the new zealand ecosystem which is different to say australia is the next five companies that really built and created substantial you know unicorn status of, of varying degrees was pushpay zero sequent rocket lab and lanzatech and it's basically half deep tech half software and so that that is actually the i almost think about it as like a family tree right but those are the those are now the forefathers in many and and mothers in many regards of the next generation of companies and in our portfolio we see fingerprints on almost all of our top portfolio companies from one of those that five that i mentioned so halter for example it's a really exciting company that's moving dairy herds and, and managing dairy production with a that is on the animal works Originally at Rocket Lab, so did the Dawn Aerospace guys were at Rocket Lab originally. So does Partly from Rocket Lab. Lanzatech has produced Zincovery, Mint Innovation, Avatana, the list goes on. And so there's this deep tech thread that has begun and is starting to, I don't know, create a, create a current that I think will persist in the New Zealand tech ecosystem. Very interesting. I think on your point about Trade Me and Vend, we had Rowan Simpson on in episode 108, and, and I believe he was an early employee at both those firms, and also I think he was advisor to Zero, and now he's got a family office, and he's an LP in a number of funds. And then on Lanza Tech, I think Kosla Ventures aimed that. Like I was watching yeah. a YouTube yeah. video the other day, and Vinod Kosla was talking about it. He was spruiking it like really well on, on a YouTube video like a month ago. That's cool. So, yep. Fascinating. This probably is a good jumping off point to go into each of your firm's thesis and even your processes from first founder meeting through to money being wired and then how you help founders. I think the the deep tech one's interesting. Like I put 
climate into that and, and Vignesh, as you've touched on like robotics and aerospace, how do you look at that with the venture business model for each of you? Because I think you mentioned Australia a number of times. Australia's benefited from B2B SaaS, which has recurring revenue and high margins and fairly easy replicability, whereas deep tech, as we know, is very different and the business models can be unique. How have each of you, maybe we'll start with you, Vignesh, because you've, as you said, you've been an engineer, you've spent time in this space, so you've seen it from the other side. When you went out to build GD1, how did you balance the venture business model, but then your thesis areas where you might not get the returns in the timeframe you want them to, but you see the long-term potential? Yeah. Look, that's a, that's a great question. And I'll start by saying GD1, I guess when I joined it, we were expressly focused on a three-person team. We were expressly, you know, global from day one, GD1. We were focused on B2B SaaS. And then we expanded the remit exactly to your point because all of these kind of great interesting opportunities were coming through, uh, but the time horizons were somewhat mismatched with uh, venture, right? With kind of that 10-year illiquid asset type investing at that point. Now we've seen those things accelerate really dramatically in terms of being able to get to some sort of rationalization of value. And from my experience on the Apple side, investing or kind of helping to JV these sort of companies into a large partner or a channel partner, it's recognizing that the, what the clear channel kind of market pull effects are. Because again, as a country, we may be great at coming up with stuff that market doesn't really want and it becomes a bit of that market push where you just want to push it in see if someone kind of adopts it but i think from that kind of harder manufacturing tech type stuff you get a clear sense of what the kind of pull factors are for industry particularly across all the other related industries and so that's how we tend to look at it gd1 is a generalist investor so again across a, a broad range of opportunities so we look at SaaS, as I mentioned, hardware-enabled software, deep tech, health tech, internet 2.0. Given that our focus is quite wide, the partners tend to focus on the specific areas. And so mine are predictably the areas that I've had a lot of experience on, so the deep tech, hardware, health tech areas. And again, it's, you know, where Cognizant New Zealand is still evolving. And so it's always been more of a kind of bottom-up approach of getting conviction into any one or two things when stuff comes up. Um, But now it's a bit more um, kind of market-driven thesis around kind of we're able to kind of look at opportunities and go, huh, we can have a hunch on this in a specific area. So uh, for me in aerospace and space tech, a big thing for me is now looking at post-launch enablement. Um, And so when you kind of look at that, Dawn very quickly hit that perspective, particularly around kind of high-frequency payload delivery, suborbital space. Zeno Astronautics hit that perspective, particularly around kind of low-thrust, low low-force attitude positioning, kind of replacing super-torques and magnetorques, kind of satellites and those kind of, you know, in-space applications. And so that's how we start to now think about it as the ecosystem grows and matures. And at the same time, we run a kind of concentrated portfolio. Um, So venture here, again, is evolving where you could previously index the whole market and invest in many number of things. But now we we operate GD1 kind of more in line with a global VC firm where it's kind of super concentrated portfolio, roughly 15 to 20 companies and targeting a meaningful equity position within each. 
and kind of doubling, tripling down in those companies. Um, so that's kind of how we look at the opportunity. But yeah, it's evolving to be a lot more thesis driven, but still very much kind of a generalist approach at the kind of whole aggregate level. And, and remind us what stage you generally invest in and your average check size. So for us with Fund 3, we are a circa $150-odd million fund. And so we invest from typically the pre-Series A to Series B. We have done earlier into kind of seed, sometimes pre-seed investments. Those, 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 they, be, they are the exception to the rule and kind of, you know, extreme conviction kind of to make them come on. Our average check size tends to be around six to seven million dollars. And for us, that is again leaning more towards that pre AA size where we tend to come in and try and capture a meaningful portion uh, of equity and be a, quite an active hands on investor. I think that's one thing too. When you look at the evolution here in New Zealand, I've said evolution quite a lot, turning into a drinking game, but that's what's really been happening. <laughs> You know, yes, we had a scarcity of capital, but we also had a kind of a real scarcity of people who had built careers in private markets or kind of scaled companies to Barnaby's earlier point. And those sort of folks have been coming back in larger and larger quantums, ourselves included. And so, yeah, when you were able to kind of bring people who are a lot more active operationally, can help companies scale. That's kind of how we also look at our company. So we're not a passive investor. We can be somewhat annoying from that perspective, being quite active with our operating partners, being full-time salaried by us. And so they can be quite deeply involved in our portfolio companies. So that's something to also keep in mind, again, is the, the investment styles, whether it's active, passive. You know, people have their rationales for it. But for us, given we have a concentrated portfolio, it does make sense to be quite closely involved with our companies, given we're not indexing a wider portfolio market. Mm. I've got so many follow-ups, but I want to come to Barnaby and then we'll come back to you, Vignesh. Is Barnaby, give us a sense of Icehouse. One thing I found interesting researching of the last week is a big chunk of your assets under management actually in deep tech hardware companies, like you mentioned, Holter and Lanzatech and Rocket Lab, which which from Australian perspective was quite interesting because I thought you were more of a B2B SaaS investor. So clearly I've got more education to do there. But give us a sense of Icehouse's thesis and how you tend to meet founders and your check size and fund, fund operations. Yeah, nice. Okay, cool. A lot of questions there. So starting at the top, so we are... Overall, we've got about 350 funds under management, broadly in two buckets. One is our seed fund series. We're up to seed fund three. The last seed fund is a $45 million fund. And then our growth fund series, the first fund was 110. We're raising currently our second growth fund at about 70 now, aiming for 100 early next year or so. So the thesis really is to invest in Brave Kiwi founders with unique insights building global companies. And so you can break those down into its component parts, which are founders that have found what we call founder market fit. So what is the story of the entrepreneurs that have led them to this point and this business being the most logical step in their career and in their, in their life's journey? And then we, we talk quite a lot about what it, what it means to, 
to build a company and and have quite frank discussions i'd say with entrepreneurs when we are in the diligence phase to understand their real motivations and what makes them want to be successful on on that point with the growth and early fund is that separated internally like do you sit across both funds and you can you make decisions on both because yeah something that i've been fascinated by recently is a lot of funds are now having different investment committees as well where they've got a growth investment committee an early stage investment committee and it's very much siloed internally how do you guys work through that we've got separate limited partnership advisory committees for both so they both need external approvals but the the investment committee themselves are are both internal and we we've talked quite a lot about the trade-offs of that there is an inherent conflict that exists with having a early stage fund that's separate from your later stage fund but the benefits for us far outweigh the cons which is just a much bigger surface area of preemptive rights and information for our for our growth stage fund so we end up investing in companies where we've known them for three plus years at the growth stage where we're pretty intimately aware of the the warts and all and we're not starting a and in that regard we can actually make faster decisions than we would be able to if we were to be meeting these companies at, at day one when we start the diligence process so so yeah, that's how we, we so we run them synchronously essentially, and have one weekly investment committee. the The other side to our business is we've got what we call fund management as a service. So we've built a quite a scaled platform for managing venture funds, um, and manage, and that's really come from the background. Like, it kind of it pays to note that. Our LP base, and it's, it's probably quite similar of many New Zealand venture funds in aggregate, is 20% institutional money, 80% family offices, high net worth individuals, exited entrepreneurs. That means we've got quite a lot of LPs. That has two, two kind of aspects to it. One is that we've got a really large aligned network of individuals that we can use as a part of our DD process or use as a part of our value proposition to companies to help them build their business. And they've, you know, that the, our LPs are from all around the world, New Zealand expats, international entrepreneurs, there's venture fund LP, GPs that, that are invested with us. So it's quite a broad set of potential value that we can bring to bear with our portcos. The second aspect is really managing communications, managing capital calls, all of the logistics that go into managing lots of different, you know, lots of LPs. So to do that, we built our own investment platform. And then about a year and a half ago, we said, hey, well, why are we, well, maybe actually longer than that, probably two and a half years ago, we said, why are we using this only for ourselves? We should look at how we could scale this platform. So we brought on our first partner fund, which is called Outset Ventures. Um, that was that's we actually invested in their management company and and run their fund as the back office. That's um, that, that's the deep tech incubator space that was the home of Rocket Lab and Lanzatech and many other uh, famed New Zealand deep tech companies. Both Peter Beck and Sean Simpson are on the ad, uh, they're on the investment committee of that fund. 
And that gives us the opportunity to essentially just see more deal flow. Mm. We've now, with this year, we've launched a second fund that's quite similar in nature called the Brand Fund with a, with a firm called Previously Unavailable, which is the preeminent mm. branding agency for startup companies here in New Zealand. They're kind of like Red Antler for New Zealand. They've started a venture studio um, and also invested their time into a range of companies. They had about 11 in their portfolio uh, and the performance was really quite incredible. So we said, hey, why don't we set up a fund for you guys and, and bring that into the family and professionalize and start to uh, potentially scale up what you're doing here. They've done two. They've done two adventure studio companies so far. One is Tracksuit, which is by far and away, I think, the fastest growing SaaS company that we have in our portfolio, maybe New Zealand in total. So, so yeah, that, that's. So we've got the, yeah. Just to kind of wrap things up, I suppose like there's two two core aspects to our, our business, our seed fund, and our growth fund series, but we're quite creative in how we think about. I suppose growing our overall footprint and yeah, accessing accessing opportunities that we might not otherwise. Very interesting. Yeah. Two follow up questions to that. Maybe Vignesh will start with you. Is the actual decision making process at GD one? I think the more time I spend in venture, the more I realize how opaque this is for other mm-hmm. venture managers, but particularly founders who come in and have that first meeting. I have no idea what the next steps are. I, I had a founder the other day message me and he literally laid out the steps. He's like, are these your steps? And I said, oh, yes, but it can change based on the deal. So I can't give you a clear time frame. How do you set those expectations with founders, Vignesh, when they meet you for the first time? Let's assume I met you today and I'm a founder. Do you mm-hmm. tell that founder what your time frame is and what the next steps do I see in decision-making are? Yeah, I think now we do a much better job of it. I think historically probably it's collectively as an industry has been a bit of a mea culpa because it's probably been more fast and fluid. But I think from our end, for GD1 in particular, you know, with Fund 3, Barnaby hit on some stats on their fund, obviously, but ours has been a little bit different in terms of our makeup. So with Fund 3, we became a lot more institutional in nature on our LP side. Uh, and because of that, you know, the equation kind of flipped from being 20% institutional to upwards of 60, 70% institutional. And that kind of brings with it a level of structure and oversight, which, you know, surprise, surprise, can be a little bit overbearing. And so because of that, our process has become a little bit more regimented on the investment committee side, a bit more longer. And so when we meet founders, we're a lot more precise now going, this will take some time. Um, because we do have a process that we have to run through here, kind of starting at our analysts, you know, sometimes the partner may join out of curiosity and then the partner then kind of builds up conviction with the other partners. Then we get to IC and we kind of go through. And yes, it can seem daunting. Yes, it can seem a little bit long, but that level of oversight and clarity around kind of controls helps with decision-making. And I think, you know, when Barnaby was mentioning on the Ice House side, and great question from your end, Bidit, which is kind of the, how do you delineate the early stage and growth stage investment committees, you're seeing it kind of split. Yeah, I think those controls matter because when you look at the Oz side, a lot more institutional capital is also flowing in. And so in New Zealand, again, outside of us and Movac, so outside of GD1 and Movac, most funds are still mostly kind of pine networks, individuals, family offices. And so because of that, there's less of a push of real regimented kind of structure across. And 
control and kind of conflicts. And so, you know, because of that, it does mean our investment processes are a bit longer. Um, so we try to be a bit more open about that with our founders. But it does it does take a bit of time with us now. So on average, from start to finish, four to five weeks, I wouldn't be surprised. And in this market, could go a bit longer. It's just also kind of a nature of the work. One last thing to add is also, I think, when you asked your previous question about investment thesis, I always take it for granted saying GD1 global from day one. But that is kind of our investment thesis. We're only investing in companies originated from New Zealand going global. So kind of 95% of the revenues of our portfolio companies come from outside of Australia and New Zealand. But again, I, I had to say that. Otherwise, I know my uh, chief marketing officer at GD1, Heather, would just be all over me saying, how did you not answer kind of the the main thesis of the brand? And I go, well, I thought it was implied. GD1, global from day one. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that clarification. And I think on that point, Vignesh, just to round that out, is how do you work with other funds, particularly funds in Australia and the US, do you? Is it more that you find an investment that you like, but you want to bring in someone who's got more sector expertise, or is it more on check size where you can help the founder be, build a more padded round? How do you decide when to bring in other Australian or international investors into your investment round? Look, I think it's purely around the follow-on depth of capital now. Uh, that's how we view it, and it may be a bit arrogant or thing to say. Uh, I think when we look at our capabilities, we feel fairly confident of our ability to assess the different sector types and kind of make an informed opinion. And again, the strength of our networks, again, fairly confident we have some of the stronger networks this side of the Southern Hemisphere, right? And so for us, it's less about bringing on external capital that we think validates our decision-making or kind of introduces folks into our networks it's just more the depth of capital. And so when we look at portfolio companies, it's again, thinking about how we can underwrite real depth of capital. So when we look at companies in our portfolio, companies like Basis, which I know we had a quick discussion pre kind of recording about, but when you look at a company like that, that's going to be capital intensive for a while. And it's about kind of go-to market speed, ingesting a lot of real depth of capital ourselves and ice house as an example have written meaningful checks into it when you look at companies like dawn halter zeno they are all going to be equally ingesting quite an aggressive amount of capital and so we're looking for real depth uh, of capital and follow-on so that's can that's how we plan out our rounds and that's when we decide to kind of introduce partners offshore um, locally a and z um, but i think outside of that again it's you know we let each fund partner decide how they market themselves to the opportunity versus kind of, you know, we feel fairly certain of our capability. We look to partner our, our founders up with kind of more depth of capital for later stage. Barnaby, you've been listening very intently on Vignesh's answers, so your turn to answer the oh, same I've heard question. that answer before. <laughs> challenge it? Do you want to challenge the answer or do you want <laughs> uh, Not particularly, no. I mean, I think... I- Sorry, what was what, go back to the what was the question again? I kind of it would sound like a lot of Vignesh's answer. Yeah, there's a few there's a few questions time. there. So I think Vignesh answered them from GD1's perspective. I guess for Icehouse, Barnaby is 
if a founder is meeting you today, let's assume I've met you and I'm a founder, yeah, what's right. your investment making process and how do you remove the opaqueness from that for founders, but also other fund managers who might co-invest with you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, first of all, we, we, we say to founders is at the start of the process, we optimize for fast no's. And so we're trying to be as transparent I suppose just like respecting the founder as the as the center of the the process is is how we think about it most commonly, and try and be as transparent as possible with the reasons why we are saying no. And I think that's something that most VCs actually don't give enough time or effort to that. Because it can be really beneficial for the for the founder to go and continue to sharpen their even their communication or actually change the strategy. In some cases, it is. You know, you hear things enough times from from VCs. I mean, I think the one thing to note there though is like, and this is what we also say to many companies is like, there's only a few companies which are actually venture backable that have a big enough market and a differentiated enough value proposition to be able to return the type of returns that we need from everything that we're in in terms of the potential from everything that we invest in. And that is inherently because most things won't return much money or anything. If you look at venture statistics from the last 40 years, all portfolios are made by the top 10%. Um, of the companies in the portfolio. So every single one of those companies has to have a huge market and it has to be differentiated and have multiple layers of defensibility that drive outsized valuation of their future cash flows at the time of liquid, you know, time of uh, liquidity for us. Like we, and I don't think many venture processes look very different in, in effect you, you start by meeting one of the investment team. We've got nine on our team, um, five are partners. The, the four are analysts or associates. Um, you start by meeting somebody on the team. Somebody builds an investment case. There's a second generally that comes along with the deal and provides the, the kind of black hat. And then um, that gets built into an investment thesis that comes and gets pitched to the IC if things are favorable from the first pitch, we try and actually have our our initial IC pitch early in the process and that's to flush out all the questions. So basically we want to have everybody's everybody's expressions of concern or positivity built into the investment paper from the start. And does a founder come and present before or is that just internal? Founder so that's well before the final IC. Yeah, exactly. And then we don't have them come back to the final IC. We just... We just build that ourselves and, and pitch that the, the the lead pitches that back to the IC. Um, so then and then once we we do it kind of splits into two halves. We've got business due diligence, which happens all building the investment case, and then once we've had an approval from the IC, we'll write up a term sheet, and that generally takes I don't know it could take four weeks, it could take six weeks, it could take two years. I mean, a lot of the companies that we end up investing in, we've known the founders for an extended period of time. And then there's the post, post-term post sheet due diligence process, which is pretty formulaic. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. legal and it's 
P and employment contracts and you know everything being assigned and all those types of things. So that's just a uh, that we've got an in-house legal counsel that runs that process. I'm so glad you've both given really open and candid answers on this process because, as you both know, often VCs content marketing and their reality can be very different. So I'm glad you've both been quite upfront with your with your answers. So hopefully, people listening can get a pretty good sense when they come talk to you about what to expect. We've got a few minutes left, so I want to round out the conversation maybe with if each of you had a magic wand, what do you what would you like to do in the New Zealand ecosystem? Whether it's policy or tech or capital allocation, you pick the part of the ecosystem. Vignesh, maybe we start with you if you're ready. I think this comes back to something uh, we discussed even kind of a while back, all three of us, which was the appreciation of the wider New Zealand public for the tech ecosystem. I think that's kind of, there just isn't enough visibility uh, across all those items. And I know Barnaby kind of gave his perspective and I don't know if it's a general apathy or if it's an ignorance. If it's an ignorance of kind of what we're creating, then that's on us. But there's almost a, a kind of an apathy around kind of the tech innovation ecosystem. And people seem to be kind of fixated on residential real estate and real estate in general. And that's a function of kind of the way our economy is structured. People kind of accrue wealth via investing into four walls and some dirt versus kind of the reality is you want to be able to grow an ecosystem and innovation and a weightless export economy, right? So you want to be able to really shift the focus and the needle to more interesting things like technology companies. So if I could wave a wand, it would be kind of to improve that general kind of market awareness of the work that happens in the innovation ecosystem. I mean, you only have to sample you know, I like to I like to reference Reddit's New Zealand subreddit as a microcosm, but there's constantly a post there about how what's happening in the innovation ecosystem. And, you know, one or two people are constantly posting about how their one friend worked at zero like 15 years ago, and that's it. But then now there's literally like, you know, 30, 40 companies worth north of $100 million in kind of market cap value. So when you think about that, there's a lot of opportunity. We just don't do a good enough thing to kind of grow that. I've got my, my typical kind of tax rant that I know Barnaby's also heard much of, <laughs> but I'll leave that to, to him to kind of talk about. But if we could actually think about stuff like ESV CLP from the Australian side, I integrate that here. I'm sure all of us could collectively have a trade-off between the capital gains free side. I, I must say but, it's so interesting yeah. hearing you both speak because everything's relative. Like, here in Australia, we complain that we're so small compared to the rest of the world and the government's not supporting and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But then hearing you both it's speak, relevant. it's like, yeah, we actually have we actually have a lot of good things going that I remember, Vignesh, I think you were telling me the other day about even the AFR, but like things get picked up in the mainstream media, whereas in New Zealand, I think you were saying maybe not quite as much. So it's interesting. And we always complain that, oh, we're not getting enough prominence. So. <laughs> I think we're never happy though. I was talking to a friend yesterday that, comparing the New Zealand economy to the Irish economy and, you know, all the, the benefits of foreign direct investment that have gone into Ireland in the past three decades and really transformed the GDP per capita and just increased the overall prominence and, and quality of that economy. But he's like, oh, you know, we've got plenty of things to complain about. So it's never perfect, you know. I would say, I mean... I would say something similar, right? Like I think the, the 
the main thing that I would want to change if I had a magic wand would be the overall ambition of the New Zealand economy and the and and the people within it, and and kind of just it's, it's, it's a real it's a real cliche, but I think it is very true that we as a nation are still very sheepish in our aspiration and our claim to being able to make something of mm. global unique significance. And mm-hmm. so, and I, and I think like, you know, right now we've got the other thing, which I don't think people appreciate as much as they should. I was doing an interview for NBR last week for uh, a future foods piece that we're, we've done a few different investments in agriculture technology and, and the future of alternative proteins. And I was doing some research before the call just about the makeup of New Zealand's exports. And it is just, it's, I, I know it, but you look at it on paper and it's just low value. And it's, it's not dissimilar to, to Australia, right, where you're exporting a lot of iron ore and just other kind of core commodities. But New Zealand's economy, really, it's we're exporting dairy milk powder. We're ex- exporting meat. We're exporting some apples, some kiwi fruit. <laughs> And, and then the, there's a pretty, you know, there's a long tail after that. But for us to grow our economy and to be, to create high value jobs and, and really lift people that are, po- you know, that are impoverished in New Zealand and everything's relative again, poverty in New Zealand's still not as bad as other parts of the world that are developing, but there's still problems to solve and social issues that can be alleviated massively by high value companies that are born and grow out of out of the this country and so i think that's that's probably the main that's probably the main thing would be just creating some really ambitious high growth minded people that want to charge forward so, well you've um, appointed a new new prime minister last week who's ex unilever so time will tell what <laughs> what that brings to your economy where he comes from the food industry and business which yeah, is yeah yeah we'll um, time will tell <laughs> i'm not I mean, well he also I mean, he, he, he also did campaign on yeah he also did campaign on reducing all the red tape around interest rate deductions for multiple properties so hey yeah. i think it's a circular argument back to reality from where we are yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah let's not maybe we won't go too far into politics on this on this conversation but I, it wouldn't be a podcast if we don't end with a quick rapid fire sprint and maybe i'll just ask one question to each of you and i didn't give you this prior so putting you on the spot is is there one thing each of you want to learn in the next six months vignesh is there anything on your learning list it could be in work or life that that's top of mind I think the the biggest thing is time management, mate. I feel like that's yeah. something that <laughs> I I feel like I, I, I conquer and then I just fail at. And I think this kind of comes back to something that was, you know, you see that expectation on LinkedIn. People are like, why don't VCs respond so fast? And like, they haven't responded for so long since I sent an intro or something. And it's kind of like, well, I'm trying. It's not for a lack of trying. It is truly because I'm being buried. But I think when I when I reconcile those things, it's just needing to be better in kind of managing the facets of life and work, and you know, like everybody, managing a family and little ones running around and fitting it all into the the wonderful work we do in venture. 
Totally. Barnaby, what's on your learning list? Yeah, next I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it, but with with 30 seconds of additional time to contemplate, I think one of the things that Lucky. I... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think one of the things that I think about probably most often is, I don't know, it's kind of like contentedness, right? Like maybe a bit of a stoic philosophy fan and it's easy to feel like you're never there you're never quite there Mm -hmm. and there's always like more things that have to be done before you can get to a point where you can be satisfied and in some regards i think it's one of the most valuable mindsets to have because it it pushes you to continue to go it's like the get up and go right because i'm not there yet so i have to get there but in other ways life can just all of a sudden be gone, right? Like you wake up tomorrow and then it's like, okay, hold on a second. Where's all the time, you know, I've got, I've got young kids and, you know, appreciating those micro moments I think is actually, and again, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think that's probably my constant pursuit at the moment is trying to just make sure I have a bit of time to smell the roses as well as continue on my furious fight for greatness. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because your points are exactly what's on my mind at the moment. I, I literally this morning we're recording on a Monday morning. I literally put both these points on my like yeah. focus list that I do every Monday morning, which I like just put together some points in we're life. Clearly, we're clearly listening to the same podcasts, <laughs> mate. I, but, but 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 let's be serious. I think these are like our 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 industry norms. I think when I applied to the Kaufman Fellows thing and. That was my, like, what do you expect to achieve? Contentedness and better time management because I feel like you're just, like, doing stuff without appreciating the now, yeah. So I think it's it's a symptom of kind of just doing a lot without stopping to appreciate what you've achieved and then kind of, you know, planning from there. But it's a struggle and mm-hmm. we're all learning through it. Yeah, we could continue this conversation for hours, but that brings us to a finish line. Barnaby Marshall, Vignesh Kumar, thank you for joining me. Thanks for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Barnaby Marshall and Vignesh Kumar in this episode 149. I enjoyed the learning expedition about New Zealand's startup and VC ecosystem and Barnaby and Vignesh's journeys to date. Particular areas that stuck out to me were the importance of a clear decision-making framework internally in a VC firm, including investment committee clarity, how investors in VC have various entry points and come from all sorts of previous careers, and the areas of time management and being content, making the top of all three of our learning lists. I hope you enjoyed this episode 149. We're one away from episode 150. And as always, let me know your thoughts on this conversation. All my details are in the show notes. Talk soon.